And so, uh, as you know, we've been on this series called Life in the Balance, and we're studying the book of Romans, and we're on our seventh week. Everybody say seven. Can you believe that? Seven weeks in each week, we've been talking about what's going on in each chapter, and we talked a lot about the the perfect justice of God. We talked a, a lot about the perfect mercy of God and how those are intention and and how do we live that out? We've had a lot of talk about sin, right? A lot of talk about sin. And, uh, and, and we're going to have more today. And, uh, and so, but don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, chapter 8 is coming. And, and there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's just this process by which the Apostle Paul is talking to these little, this little fledgling group of Jewish and Gentile believers in the city of Rome. And they're reading a letter. He's writing a letter to, to them. And I want, you to, I want you to see yourself, you know, and, and your experience through the lens of these passages. That's why I want, you to, I want you to read along with us. Like during the week, be reading in the book of Romans. I think it's really, really helpful. And so as we look at chapter 7, if you want to turn there, we'll, we'll start in verse 14. But what I'm going to talk about this morning will save you a lot of heartache and confusion in your Christian life. Because typically when you first become a Christian, everything becomes new and fresh for you, right? There's like a honeymoon phase and all the colors are vibrant and it's incredible and it's awesome. And then there's, after a while, some old habits can begin to creep, creep in. Sometimes you have problems and you start to face those problems, not with the new reality of God's grace, but in the old reality of your control. So it's easy to start giving in to the habits that you've had before. It's easy to start thinking if after a while, I thought I was through with that. You might be thinking, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not even a Christian anymore. This is what Paul's talking about in chapter 7. And I, we need to unpack it. Let's pray. Father, would you give us insight and revelation to your word? Let it come alive in all of our hearts. Shine the light of your word into every dark place. And give us your grace so that we can obey and respond in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 7 verse 14 says this, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? When I was reading that, I just kept reading it over and over again. First of all, this week, I could tell you that there's a lot of do-do-do-do-do-do's in it. <laughs> and, then there's, and then there's this sense of almost like confusion about the passage, almost like a, a complexity that's not really there. Like, it seems complex because of the way Paul is trying to unpack it, but it's really pretty simple. And then I couldn't help but think of a movie scene that's one of my favorite scenes of all time. A moment of confusion where a choice must be made. Yes, I speak of the battle of wits in The Princess Bride. What you do not smell is called Iocane powder. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid and is among the more deadly poisons known to man. Hmm. All right. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked. You've given everything away. I know where the poison is. Then make your choice. I will, and I choose. What in the world can that be? What? Where? I don't see anything. Oh, well, I sworn I saw something. I thought, no matter. Hmm. <laughs> What's so funny? I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. First, let's drink. Me from my glass and you from yours. <laughs> you guessed wrong. 
You only think I guessed wrong. That's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha <laughs> ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> I'm no one to be trifled with. That is all you ever need know. To think, all that time it was Shawcut that was poisoned. They were both poisoned. I spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. <laughs> oh, what a dizzying intellect. <laughs> there is a sense at which People try to deal with sin in all kinds of ways. There's so many people who are trying to fight and avoid the poison. Right? And there's a choice to be made. Many don't understand what sin even is. Uh, some act like it doesn't even exist. It's not, it's not even real. It's something some religious person made up. Some people... They believe it won't actually kill them. It's just a little tiny white lie. It's not anything big. Some try to, to cheat it. Some try to, they try to outsmart it. They think that they can put everything in just the right position so that sin won't take them over. Still others think it's simply a religious fairy tale made up by people who made up the Princess Bride. Listen, you and I can try to outsmart sin, this thing in our lives. We can try to say, look, I, I think I'll do this, I'll do that, I, I won't look at this, I'll make sure that I'm over here making this happen, uh, I'll make sure I'm in really involved, I'm, I gotta stop taking this substance, I really have to try harder. We do all these mental gymnastics trying to convince ourselves that we can do it. We get religiously resistant to some particular sin but don't realize the poison of legalism is just waiting on the other side. We think we can switch the cups to avoid the poison and escape the death that is inevitable because both cups are poisoned. Paul is talking about the tension in humanity in regards to sin. Some of us we tend to throw the whole thing out the window from time to time. All right, I used to do that Jesus stuff, but, but that, that was a long time ago. Some of us get so discouraged, we don't, we don't know what to do because we've been wrestling a long time. But then something happens like happened in our city this week. A young man smart and intelligent 23-year-old starts making bombs in his bedroom and then sends them to people to kill them. And you, and you, like you can't wrap your mind around what that is. Like what is, what is wrong with a person? And, and there's all, now listen, 
You know what happens? There's a miracle. You are born again in that moment as you surrender to him, as you yield to him. And when you're, when you're born, it's not just, oh, I have a new, some new ideas that I'm going to try to work into my life. <laughs> We're not talking about just adding Jesus to our list of hobbies. We're not talking about just adding Jesus to a great meal. Okay, Jesus, we just pray over it. No, we're talking about something that, a supernatural thing that goes on inside of a person. Like they, something comes alive. A spiritual birth happens. That's why Jesus calls it being born again in John 3. That's what it's called being born of the spirit. You've already been born physically. Now you are born spiritually. And when you're born spiritually, you have a new nature. And this nature when we follow Jesus, we become a Christian, this new nature wants to do what's right, wants to please God, wants to live for God. That's the sincere, earnest desire of every believer. But there's the second thing, number two, I still have an old nature. This other nature, the nature we had before we became a Christian. Ephesians 4.22 says, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian believers, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. See, it's our old nature that wants to sin, that never wants to do right. Our old nature couldn't do right if it wanted to. It doesn't have the power to do what's right, at least not for very long. The old nature will never change. You can't whip it into shape. You can't dis discipline it. You can't, by your own power, change it. Here's the, the one thing about your old nature. Your old nature doesn't die when you become a believer. <laughs> Man, I wish that thing went away. You still have it. As long as you live on this earth, you're going to have some old desires that try to creep up and take over. What a bummer. Everybody say it. What a bummer. And if you deny it, you're, you're in trouble. And so because you have two natures in your life, there's a civil war that's raging in your life. Here's how Paul said it in Galatians 5, 16 through 17. He said, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not have what, you, so you do not do what you want. Did you see it? There's a civil war going on in your life between your old desires and driven by your flesh and your new desires driven by God's spirit that is living within you. Your old nature is wanting to stick to your old ways, to indulge in your flesh. Your new nature is wanting to adopt new ways to follow after God. And that's why they're in conflict with each other. And, and that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in chapter 7. I don't know if you realize it, but today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday on the church calendar is the day before Easter every year, and it is the day that's commemorating, the reason Palm Sunday has that name is Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem to great fanfare. He rode on a donkey, and they waved palm branches uh, in front of him, and, and they were like making a big display, and it was like, it seemed like everyone in this city was really excited about Jesus. All the miracles, all the signs and wonders, all the stuff that happened, they were embracing Jesus as the Messiah. Think about it. 
The disciples felt validated in their sacrifice of, you know, following Jesus for three years, and they knew that this was the long-awaited deliverer. But then, think about this. Are you still with me? Only four days later. Four days later, the crowd is completely turned on Jesus and demanding that he be crucified. Peter is denying that he even knew Jesus. Not just once, but three times he denies him. How is this possible? How can a whole group of people go from worshiping Jesus to wanting to crucify him and completely denying him? I think about this and I read it and I say, what is wrong with these people? Until I think about myself. Here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul, I think, gives five conclusions that we have to, that we have to embrace for winning this civil war that's inside of us. Five key conclusions for winning the civil war. Here's the first one. The first conclusion that the Apostle Paul comes to is, number one, I have a problem. <laughs> yes, it's true. I have a problem. Verse 14 says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. The first thing the Apostle Paul says is, okay, my name is Paul, and I have a problem. Yes, it's the first step to every 12-step program. If you never come to the first step, you will never get through this thing. If you don't admit that you have a problem, there is no way that you can deal with sin adequately. Before you can ever get victory in your life, you have to face the facts. You have to face the reality that these two natures are warring within, within you. So many people never start here. They actually, they don't really admit that there's a problem. They don't believe that sin even exists. They don't think they're that bad. They don't acknowledge that sin is an evil, it, that sin is an evil dwelling within them, which means they don't, here's the thing, if they don't admit it, they don't really need a Savior. If you don't come to grips with, now Christians a lot of times, they'll be like, it's not really a sin, it's more of an issue. <laughs> no, it's a sin. Stop it. I knew one pastor who said, if you can call it a sin, you can get rid of it. Because Jesus can deliver you from every sin. You have to say, I have a problem. Because you can't, if you don't need a savior, it's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm good. I just need to work on it a little. Work on it a little. But then... You ask them to explain the Austin bomber and they can't. The key to Romans 7 is the word I. Everybody say it. I. I is used 27 times in 12 verses. And we see that the Apostle Paul had an I problem. And you know what? That's your problem and that's my problem as well. Because, see friends, my biggest problem is not the devil. My biggest problem is not the devil. Your biggest problem is not the devil. You know what your biggest problem, my biggest problem? My biggest problem is me. That's really the case. 
My biggest problem is me. Because here's the thing. Jesus gave every Christian, every person who believes and follows him, every person who surrendered to him and accepted him, he's given them authority over every enemy, over the demons, over the devil. Christ, the scriptures are clear over and over again. Jesus said it right before he left his disciples. He said, I have been given all authority. If he was given all authority, how much is left for the devil? What? Yeah, good math. If I have a pie and I eat all the pieces, how much is left for you? None. None. He's, he has all the, you know what the problem? The problem isn't the devil, it's me. My new nature wants to do right, but my old nature continually wants to do what is wrong. The second conclusion that the Apostle Paul comes to is, I'm confused. I'm confused. Verse 15 says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I've heard so many people sit in my office as a pastor and describe this. I hate this and I don't want to do it. Is it weird that I have some kind of comfort that the Apostle Paul himself has said this? The Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and here he is, he's saying these words. He didn't always understand what was happening in his life. All of us come to this moment where we're like, oh, what I hate, I actually do. And here in this verse, the Apostle Paul's wrestling with two perplexing questions. Two perplexing questions. You can write it on your own if you want. Here's the questions. How can I stop doing bad things? How can I ever start doing good things? How can I stop doing bad things? And how can I ever start doing good things? It's so empty. I just have to do better. People wilt, they crumble, they're crushed under the weight of do better. Doesn't matter who you are. Listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying that he just can't seem to do right. He says, what I want to do, I end up not doing. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. This is exactly how it is with all of us because how many of us start the day with the best of intentions? Today is going to be the day. It's going to be different. I'm not going to do such and such. I'm going to do this. And at the end of the day, no such luck. So many Christians who are confused about this idea of being a new creation and understanding that they have a new reality. They, you know, you wake up in the morning, you don't feel very new creation-y. <laughs> you ever have one of those mornings? <laughs> I don't feel very new creation-y today. It's hard to feel that way. By the way, this is why the life of a Christian is a life of faith. The kingdom of God is like an amputee. Some of you heard me talk about this before, but an amputee is a person who's missing a limb. And I want you to see that the kingdom of God has this same dynamic. An amputee person who's lost a limb for one reason or another, uh, from a military battle to a car wreck, um, and they all experience something called phantom limb syndrome. You can write it down if you want. Phantom limb 
syndrome. And it's the idea that they'll feel their foot itching, even though their foot's not there. And even though um, they, they're missing their hand, they can feel that their hand is hurting even though it's not actually there. And doctors used to simply treat it with medication, Tylenol or whatever, and, and as they would treat this, it would relieve the symptoms and they'd stop itching or hurting, their hand would stop, all that, but only for a short while and the symptoms would then return. Modern medicine now has discovered something for amputees. They, they found that the nerve system is full, still fully functioning even though the limb is missing. So the nerve endings, which is a really important analogy for us, like you've got a new spirit, but all the nerves are still there. <laughs> all the wiring still happening. The body, you still live in it. And so they realize, turns out that the nerve system continues to send signals to the brain because the nervous system isn't used to being cut off. So the leg is cut off, but the nerve ending that's right there isn't used to being the end. And so it still sends the same signals over and over again up to the brain. Oh, my foot's itching. Oh, I feel a little weird. I feel my, my foot hurts. So the nerve ending is sending a signal because it's not at the end of the line. It thinks it's still the middle of the leg. It's still functioning. Now, listen to this. It's still functioning according to the old reality. It's the old reality and not the new reality in Christ. So they, they found that the nerve ending, here's how they treated it, that the, the treatment is that the nerve ending needs to be stimulated in order for the new reality to take place. So they'd use... They'd use shocks, they'd use different things, <coughs> excuse me, to, to, to stimulate the new reality. And that's why sometimes you'll see an amputee and they're, they're kind of, you know, they're just working on it. They're, they're stimulating the new reality by hitting the end of that nerve. Everybody say stimulate. You got to stimulate the new reality. That's the, that's the solution. And then the, the effect goes away. The nerve ending realizes what the new reality is and stops sending old signals. That's the same way it is for you and me as a Christian. But the question really is, what, how do we stimulate the new reality? How do we feed the new nature? You know what stimulating the new reality is? The old nervous system's still in place. Our body's still here. But you know what you have to do to stimulate the new reality? Things like water baptism, reading the scriptures, prayer and worship, going to church. I know you never thought of it like this. These things are not things we just do because we're, our parents did them or because it's some kind of nice thing that we're supposed to do. This is still supposed to stimulate a new reality that heaven is coming to earth and heaven is actually in your heart. Paul says, I'm confused. And I think we've all had that experience where we're functioning according to the old reality when there's a, a new reality sitting right in front of us. Don't be confused. Stimulate the new reality. The third conclusion that the Paul, Apostle Paul makes is, I'm frustrated. Ever been frustrated? 
Me too. Verse 17 through 18. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. See one chapel, the Apostle Paul says, I have these great intentions, but I just can't seem to pull them off. Nothing seems to change. There's an amazing theological book called Frog and Toad Together. <laughs> and there's a little story in it I want to share with you that talks a little bit about this. Here it is. Toad bakes some cookies. These cookies smell good, said Toad. He ate one. They taste even better, he said. Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I've made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I've ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let's eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog said to Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. <laughs> yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. <laughs> we need willpower. Willpo what is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. <laughs> that is true, said Frog. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog got a ladder. He put the box up high on a shelf. There, said Frog. Now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That's true, said Frog. Frog climbed the ladder, took down the box from the shelf, cut the string, opened the box. He took the box outside. He shouted in a loud voice, hey, birds, here are the cookies. Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog. But we have lots and lots of willpower. <laughs> you may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I'm going home to bake a cake. You see, there is a, a desire to do what's good, but you just can't carry it out. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. I have a problem. This is what Paul's painting in the picture, number four, the fourth conclusion that Paul makes in this chapter is, I'm in a battle and I'm losing. Verse 21 says, so now I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another work Another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in my members. 
I want you to underline those words, law of sin. See, people, the law of sin is just like the law of gravity. You may want to fly, but it ties you down. You may want to flap all you want in your flesh, but you'll never get off the ground in your own effort. Think about this way. If I went outside and I found a dead bird on the ground and I picked it up and I flung it into the air and said, fly, bird, fly, what's going to happen? It's going to fall right down. Why? Why is it going to fall right down? Because there's no life in it. There's no life in it. That's how it works with you and me. If we keep God's own command in my own power, if I'm... I'm not going to make it if there's no life in it. I'm not going to make it in my own strength because the law of sin makes me dead. That's why I have to have the power of the Holy Spirit breathing life into my soul. That's the only way I'll be able to come alive. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. Hang with me. We'll get to it in a a couple weeks. Next week's the resurrection. It's going to be awesome. And then we're going to talk about the life of the Spirit. See, friends, there's only one law greater than sin. The law of sin creates dead people. I'm convinced that our culture is a bunch of people who are dead inside. And they keep trying to do great adventures and do uh, incredible things. And they're they're having sex with everything that walks because they're just trying to feel alive trying to feel alive inside, but they're dead. There's only one higher law, and it's the law of the Spirit. It's a, it's a higher law that sets you free from the, to, to live the life that Jesus wants for you and me to live, which leads us to our fifth conclusion that the Apostle Paul makes. Number five, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of my rope, verse 24. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Did you know that the word wretched in the Greek literally means worn out from exhaustion? Worn out from exhaustion. And I think there's so many Christians who feel this way. They're out of energy. They're tired. They've been fighting the battle so long they just can't get the victory. And Apostle Paul is crying out in agony. He's saying, God, I can't change. I I can't change in my own power. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Let me share with you the image that is portrayed here by the Apostle Paul in his hearers. They would have understood that in in the New Testament times, there were cultures and societies that when a person committed a murder, one of the forms of punishment they used was they would take the body of a person who had been murdered and chain it to the murderer's body. He had to carry around this body as it decayed over the next several days. And they carried it around. They'd have to, it was chained to them. They'd have to carry it. They, it. When they went into their house, when they went, wherever they went, when they went to sleep at night, they'd wake up in the morning and the stench of death was there. And it would start to rot and begin to stink, continually reminding them. The apostle Paul is saying here, that's the way I feel. I can't get rid of my old sin nature. See, church family, listen, you'll always have your old sin nature. As long as you're here on earth, and the sooner you realize it, the sooner you'll come to despair. And the sooner you come to despair, the sooner you'll understand that there is no option but Jesus. There is no other 
option. You have to, you have to finally yield and surrender. When, when my boy Zachary was a teenager, he was a lifeguard, and when they were training, and one of the things they taught him was that a person who was drowning cannot be saved sometimes until they're utterly exhausted. A person who is flailing will pull you under and pull you down. And so they, were, they would teach that it's, you have to wait sometimes until the person calms down and gives up before you would go in and rescue them. It's the same with us. In chapter 7, the apostle Paul is the one who's drowning. And finally, at the end of the chapter, he gets to the end of his rope. Verse 24 says it like this in the Message Bible. It says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Now listen to me, family. Stop flailing around. Stop flailing around and trying to figure out how to switch the cups, <laughs> how to escape the poison. Stop doing all this. Stop trying to outsmart your sins. Stop trying to resort to some kind of legalistic idealism, this, this, this kind of discipline that you're trying to, to, to create in your own life. Because as soon as you give up, as soon as you will relent, as soon as you realize you're at the end of the rope and there's only one option, it's verse 25 in the Message Bible, it says it this way. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in his life his life, this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. It's the answer only Jesus has that I want to point to you as well. I want you to close your eyes right now, and I just want us to come to this moment. Don't complicate it. Don't try to over-explain it. Don't try to make some reasonable excuse for yourself. Come to the end of your rope. Come to this moment and, and, and yield. And some of you in the room have been wrestling with something for a long time. You're struggling with something that's in, been in your life for a long time. And I'm telling you, God wants for you to be free. His spirit, his life, he wants to come in. It's the only way. Oh, Pastor Ross, you don't know how many times I've prayed this prayer. You know what? I don't. But God does. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not threatened by it. He's not intimidated by it. <laughs> he hasn't given up. So you shouldn't either. You say, oh, but I've been wrestling for so long and I'm just not sure it's even worth. Listen. God is interested in knowing everything about you and then giving you the power of his spirit to deal with whatever's going on. And sometimes it takes a lot of cycles. <laughs> a lot of going around and around and around and finally you, you realize, oh, I, I, I haven't 
been willing to surrender or I've been or I've had limited surrender or I or I haven't really been honest with myself or I've tried to explain it away and outsmart it those skeletons in your closet they're there Jesus knows they're there see he's not he's not threatened by them he wants you to stimulate the new reality and he wants you to feed your new nature And the only way you can do that is by saying to him, okay, Jesus, here I am, (laughs) one more time. Some of you are realizing that the gospel is coming alive in you right now. It's like, oh, I haven't really understood this. Would you be willing to let him in? We're gonna come to the Lord's table and this is... um, This table is a table of life. It's a table of provision. It's got bread on it, but that bread signifies the body of the Lord Jesus as it was broken and as he died on a cross for our healing. And the cup represents his blood being shed and spilled and that is for our forgiveness. And he has all that here for you today. The only thing he wants you to do is to do the right thing one more time. And the right thing is to yield to him. (laughs) You don't have to worry about the future. Let his spirit fill you. And don't worry about what is tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about yesterday and all that's happened yesterday. All he wants is this moment right now because his presence is here and his spirit is here and his life is here. And he wants you to receive it. Will you do it? Come and receive Lay down your burden and receive what he gives you in return at this table. Father, we come and we come to this table with open hearts and open lives. And Lord, you know every story. You know our stories. And so we bring those with us and we lay it down here at this table and we receive your nourishment and your provision. We receive your life, the life that is in the blood, the life that is in your body that was broken for us. We thank you for this drive sin out of our hearts and out of our minds. Help us, Lord, to resist that old nature, but not by our own power, but by yours. And we receive that today. In Jesus' name, amen.